You're listening to the Elmira Radio Hour, a podcast that opens the door to culture and news you definitely missed this week. We're, We're your, your hosts, Nina Bhattacharya and Sheila Lal. This week, we do some collective reflection and put each other in the hot seat. Sheila talks about her own experiences as a new business owner. And Nina talks about a recent workshop she did at the Allied Media Conference in Detroit. Both of these experiences have led to our personal growth, so we're excited to share that with you. And as a heads up, Nina sounds like she's in a wind tunnel in this episode. Sorry about that. So, what have you been up to? Like, what are some things of note recently? Overall, I started my business, uh, so I'm now a proud small business owner. Uh, So most of my days are filled with trying to keep up with all the random and miscellaneous administrative work. But uh, this weekend, I spent a couple of hours canvassing for uh, the Boone County clerk and for my state reps reelect. I noticed that you had some choice words for people whose actions don't follow their words. Yeah, I was um, like very much in my feelings about the repeated apathy from like the 2016 round. Okay, I get that people are busy, but the problem with every other election cycle is people just say they're busy and there is no real excuse to not being able to participate in the election cycle. You don't have to be like, maybe you can't uh, go no door knock. That's no problem. But if you have the ability to make a phone call or like do an hour of phone banking a month, that's incredibly helpful. Or even just learning about a political uh, candidate or an issue and being able to talk to people in your community, whether they're friends, acquaintances, family members, or even enemies. And like just having real conversations, <laughs> like that makes so much of a difference. And people aren't even willing to do that. Yeah, that's truly a shame, especially because like now there exists so many tools yep. that people can use to make phone banking easier, to make writing to our Congress people easier. Like, I've been trying to do one message through ResistBot a day, which I know isn't enough, but, like, it at least keeps me in the rhythm of being like, oh, what are the topics that I need to remain vigilant about? Here's a quick, easy way, as someone who really doesn't like talking to people on the phone, to send off a message. I want to talk a little bit more about your business venture, I've been thinking a lot about, well, in the last month, both of us have been really embarking on projects that make us excited, that are hard, that um, force us to like reckon with our self-worth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I figured that maybe we can dig a little bit into yeah. that you from a business perspective and then I can talk a little bit about imagination as a research tool 
let's start talking about drunk shrub. Yeah. What is it? Drunk shrub is, like I mentioned a minute ago, uh, my small business. But more importantly, shrub is another way of having a good time. Uh, So shrub is a vinegar-based drinking syrup. And really what that means is you got a bottle of club soda or a bottle of water and you want to jazz it up, you can throw in some shrub. And it's more complex and robust and quenches your thirst much quicker than regular soda. And for me, what it signifies is that a bar or a restaurant actively cares about their patrons who choose not to drink alcohol, that they're offering a beverage that is just as interesting as a cocktail while still respecting that choice. So what prompted you to start thinking about this in particular? I stopped drinking alcohol a couple of months ago. It was just like for personal reasons. Nothing like dramatic had happened. And when I came back home to Missouri, I was going out with friends and I realized like how bored I was of the like two selections. You either get soda, like whether it's a Coke or Pepsi product, or you get club soda and bitters. And that gets really old really fast. I went to a restaurant with a good friend and they had a shrub, they had shrubs on their menu. So I got that and their shrubs weren't very good. And I've had shrubs before. I do like them. And I thought, hmm, I might be able to make this better. It took a couple of tries, but I got pretty great results from my second and third batches and started test like tastings uh, with my friends and with random people. And they seemed to like it. And I thought, okay, as a thought exercise, let's try to build this out and I'll stop when it becomes a non-viable product or a non-viable business plan. And it hasn't stopped. So I was like, uh, I guess I'll just register to become a business and do all the regulatory and legal things that come with that. Uh, And so that's where I'm at. What have you been learning about yourself between the three batches of shrub that you've been you've mm-hmm. made so far. This is going to sound both like self-explanatory and kind of bizarre at the same time, but my experience in door knocking and canvassing and talking to people in the capital has been incredibly influential in the way that I'm able to sell my product to others. Tell me a little bit more about that. Door knocking, you you physically meet people where they're at, you listen to them, you don't give a spiel, you try to figure out a way to best tailor your messaging in that advertisement. And when I'm going around town with my shrubs in my little, in my bag, if I meet people who like might be interested in it, I have an opportunity to tell them, but they've had to like engage with me first. It's not like I'm the knocking on their proverbial door and just doing my spiel and be like, do you want to taste this? Cause that's super off putting. I didn't know that my political background would basically lead me to be a really good advertiser of my own product. I remember us chatting about that, how even though there's a lot of strengths in many business schools in terms of like the skills that you're developing, a lot of them don't really know how to leverage or pivot experiences that are not business. And this is sort of reminding me of that a little bit. And it feels like it. Like, I think that starting my own business, yes, like technically I would never need an MBA for it, but without having done the first year of school and without being exposed to so many different types of people, I definitely would not have had the confidence. And it's not like false confidence. It's just truly ingrained in who how I think now. And um, being able to use the summer to do 
true interdisciplinary learning and practice, it really, I think, is going to set me up better for the second year. All my friends from school who are doing their internships, I'm learning about the work that they're doing, and they feel really siloed off and not as happy. And today I talked to a friend who's doing more interdisciplinary strategy work for a uh, a number smaller firm, but in revenue, still like a large firm. Uh, and he seems really happy being able to go between functions. And that is signaling to me that perhaps business school education truly needs to be focused on the multi multidisciplinary nature of work instead of trying to set us up to do siloed off work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm in 100% agreement. I feel like we need education um, and skills that allow us to deal with things that are across disciplines. Yeah. that you just you sort of just it's ingrained in you now before this moment what was your self-esteem like my self-esteem was generally fine it was like at a stasis mm-hmm. but I, I think that I had been conditioned a little bit into assuming that because I didn't know the right answer that I should be a little bit on the quieter side until I have gathered my bearings or like have done research before walking into a room but now I feel like being in an environment that values and like really expects you to live this uh, learn fast, fail fast model that I just do that now. So if I don't know the answer, that's fine, but I'm going to ask a bunch of people. And by asking, I inherently create trust and like a positive relationship with them and I can go back and continue asking questions. That is not a behavior I had before going to school or even before the summer. Like, I don't know what shifted. I think maybe it was being back where I knew the culture and I knew the community and I knew that very little I could do would be embarrassing. Right. Well, I think most women are conditioned in this way to feel like they have to have all of the facts, be extra prepared or the perfect resume before they actually attempt something. Yeah. Because we've been given so many social, like societal signals that you only get one shot. Mm -hmm. I think it's really cool that you're able to like break free from that a little bit, kind of crack that a little, or at least feel comfortable being like, hey, if if like dudes get to have the, you know, freedom to have stupid ideas, so do I and that's okay. Being able to build out an idea in only three months and like actually try to like put it out in the world it's teaching me a lot more about resilience and that you don't need to have a great minimal viable product. Like I am very fortunate in that I got, and I got really lucky in that my product is good in order to break the education barrier. It's great that I have a product so people can taste it and understand what the hell I'm talking about. There's still like these kind of crazy barriers that I had experienced in politics, but I just assumed that business was a little bit more uh, neutral where if I had just walked in without any product, people would be like, okay, could you just like leave now? And I have a product. I'm like, well, do you want to taste it? Or like a hosting free samples or free tasting sessions helps build trust in a way that I think white men would never have to. Um, yeah. And, and just today, even 
I finished registering on the Department of uh, Revenue's website to, I finished my application to be considered for a minority-owned, women-owned designation. They required all these different pieces of financial and legal documentation to back up the claim that I'm, that I'm a woman, that I'm a minority. I had to bank statements. I had to have my birth certificate, my driver's license, all this stuff, an operation, um, operational agreement, uh, my stuff from the secretary of state's office. I just thought if they forced any mediocre white man to have this much information before they could even start a business, think about how much money we would save from not having so many failing businesses. But no, because I want a certification, I have to prove all of this information. And like the certification has benefits for underrepresented uh, business owners. But ironically, they expect so much before we even get that. Right, right. I mean, it's like with any, like with any social services that, oh, yeah, they're helpful. But the amount of hoops that you have to jump through to to prove something. Mm hmm. I mean, we've discussed this when it comes to voter re- voter registration, right? Yeah. Like if you're housing insecure, you don't have like an ID, like a, you know, a state ID. But in order to have a state ID, like you need proof of what, you know, it just gets hairier and hairier, like mm-hmm. the, the hoops people have to jump through. One of my favorite, why the hell did they pass this moment? Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who works in the state Senate and she said, oh, yeah, state legislature just passed uh, a statute that uh, says that if you are a low income or millennial business owner, or if you want to be, you get your registration fee waived. And I was like, that's great. But the cost of renting out a storefront is so goddamn high that there's no way any low income or millennial who doesn't have assets is going to be able to afford taking out a loan to even uh, set up a brick and mortar business or get approved to like for tenancy of a space period yeah so thinking about like tenancy and occupying a space just reminded me of regulations in general yeah. can you walk me through like what things you have to do to get drunk shrub on the market mm-hmm. so to speak the first thing is um understanding as a food product what regulations exist in the state so I, when I started, I thought, okay, I'll be under cottage law. And then I looked up cottage law in the state of Missouri, and it's incredibly vague. So I like called the state, uh, the state health department, and they're like, we don't know if vinegar falls under this. And I was like, well, it's shelf-stable inherently. And they're like, we don't know because you have ingredients in there. And I was like, Jesus Christ. So I do like an hour's worth of in-depth statute reading and like trying to figure out who the hell I should call. It turns out the state designates most of the responsibilities to the county. I'm like, great, perfect. So I go to the county and I start talking to them. It's like, okay, you have all these different things you need to hit. I was like, ugh, fine. One of them is commissary agreement, so you need to find a commercial kitchen. They didn't tell me how, I just had to guess, and the way to do that is going through the Department of Health's food inspection list. I just started cold calling. I met a couple of people and they were like, yeah, we'd love to work with you but you need to have your business license and your business insurance before we can sign an agreement. Nobody really walks you through all this. And a month later, one of my main points of contact at my bank told me like, no, it should take you 15 minutes because of X, Y, and Z reasons. And I was like, oh, great. It's just me who's going to own it. It shouldn't take long. I'll do it today. 
And it did only take 15 minutes. And now I'm waiting on to hear back from my family's insurance person to understand the business insurance cost. But okay, so we have the commissary agreement. Uh, so then I went to the uh, food sciences lab. And luckily, I happened to live in a city with a university where the food sciences lab is located. I Oh, yeah. cool. Uh, so I go to see Dr. Clark. And he says, well, you do need to get your food labels done. And there's a guy here who does them. By this point, I have already started perfecting my recipes and have developed the proportions and understanding where I would want to source materials from, which is great because that is what the nutritional label requires. Um, So I go and I fill out all this paperwork. I meet with the man who does it. Turns out he is Sri Lankan. And so we vibed real hard on sweet. Uh, yeah, we just like talked about the island and talked about food. Uh so I'm waiting to hear back about my nutritional labels, which means that I can finally print off labels. So, I'm done with like the food sciences lab, I think. Then I go back to the Department of Health and they're like, "Yeah, you also need to take this acidified foods class. That's only offered once a year through Mizzou." And so I ask, "Can I take it at a different school or can I take it online?" And they're like, "We don't know." So at this point, it's thinking, <laughs> fuck, like, this class is only offered in March. It's June. Wait, what? Yeah, like, <laughs> how am I supposed to take this class? I get a call from my person at the Department of Health. He's like, no, no, no you're good. You can take this online. Uh, North Carolina State University has an online class. So I put up money for it, and I'm taking this class currently, and it's all about... So I'm still doing it because I figure it's a good uh, cover-my-butt situation, as I'm going back and forth and like talking to other business owners, they're like, oh, you need your uh, HACCP, which is hazardous and critical conditions process. So basically, if you're making a product and something happens, like botulism starts growing or mold or there's like um, some sort of contaminant gets in, what do you do? It's like a really expensive process. I learned it t- it's like $6,000. I'm like, what, what money do you think I have for this? So I go back to Dr. Clark and he's like, yeah, you don't need that at all. Like your product, again, is inherently safe. So he is writing me a letter. A couple days ago, I emailed my person there and he's like, oh, this is good news. But like, I'm no longer at the department. So you might want to call other people. What the hell? A heads up would have been great. Uh, So that is where I currently am at. Wow. Well... I'm very glad your product is what it is, though. Because, like, even though that there's, like, things that people don't know what, yeah. like, how to answer or they keep sending you back and forth, at least you don't have to worry about shelf stability. I'm thinking a lot about places like Food Lab Detroit that do a lot of incubation and support for local food businesses. I think I came across a few uh-huh. kitchens in Massachusetts that are specifically co- commercial kitchens that rent out to local food businesses. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a bummer that like some of these types of things are less present in smaller cities right now, but it does make me hopeful that something like this could emerge like as local food scenes continue to develop in different ways. So Columbia technically has one, but I went there. I didn't see anybody. I tried 
reaching out to this woman who technically owned it on LinkedIn, like nothing. I just don't understand if the business isn't viable or if like you're done with the business, have a sign. Tell me about the shrimp flavors that you've been toying with. And like a lot of my flavor profiles are really inspired by South Asian spices. Like they're not, my fruits are very much quote unquote American and the spices and the lower tonal notes are very South Asian. The ones that I'm, I'm that I get the most excitement are the apple rose cardamom, and another one that people seem to like is peach raspberry mint jalapeno. Whoa! Yeah, Sheila, that sounds really good. It's so good. It like, yeah. So that's enough about what I'm doing because my stuff is like it's just very bureaucratic and. I don't like boring other people with the stuff I have to listen to. I don't think it's boring, Sheila. Like, I just just to put a, like, give you a little bit of a pep talk. Like, these are things that you've been learning a lot from doing, right? Finally, we're at a social juncture in the United States where we're having a lot more South Asian women in the food industry. Mm -hmm. Like, whether it... It is like Sana Jarikadri and Di- Diaspora Co. Yeah. or Breathy Mystery, or there's a growing group of people who are thinking about what it like starting businesses as South Asian women. Like I get super psyched when um, I get like such an up close and personal view of of what it takes. Because I've definitely noticed growth and I just haven't been able to take the time to put words to what type of growth it is. And like, I know that none of this work would have been possible without my parents. My parents aren't helping me in any of the business stuff because they're like, you need to learn it on your own, which I deeply value and appreciate. Um, But more than that, they let me stay in their home. They cook for me. They like allow me to drive a car. Without what seems like very basic support, I wouldn't be able to do any of it. And I don't take it for granted. Like there's so many people who have the ideas who don't have the resources. And so I see this as the privilege of being able to fail in America. So why not even attempt to succeed? But you got to do some really awesome stuff at uh, Allied Media Conference. And I know we talked about it a little bit a couple weeks ago, but there's so much still to unpack. And I'm curious to understand how you've been thinking about your workshop and the after effects since because you've had a little bit more time Mm -hmm. yeah that's a good question now that there's been a few more weeks to process the allied media conference takes place in detroit every year it brings together the diverse folks who who are leveraging media for social change so that's a very broad umbrella the conference itself which this year attracted over 2500 people touches different thematic tracks. So one thematic track would be food justice, and that could be anything from access to food in communities to hands-on workshops where 
you know, three generations of a family are teaching you how to cook some of their family dishes and some of the oral histories and stories that go along with those recipes. Another example of a track is the Magic as Resistance track, where mm. people are exploring how oracles and tarot and alternate modalities of seeing the world can be leveraged for community organizing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the data justice track, which is not only about what is the data we're collecting and what data are we lacking, so how we lack disaggregated data on Asian American Pacific Islanders in a lot of yeah. parts of the country, to how we are over collecting data and that data is being used to disproportionately surveil black and brown bodies. So that's just an example of some of the, the diversity of topics that are covered. And so this year, my friend Pyle Kumar and I, we submitted a hands-on session called Imagination as a Research Tool. This workshop was nested within the research justice track, which is thinking more critically about the ways the research field can be revolutionized, whether that's thinking more expansively of what data means. And data doesn't have to be a number. It can be a map. It can be a story. It can be a photograph. Data is not rigid. Also thinking about different projects. So, you know, folks who do a lot of grassroots research, um, like for example, at East Meets West Bookstore in Cambridge, they, they have a street bio project where they do a lot of work with young kids on, on like science projects. It's mm. not nested within an institution, right? But nested within a community organization. What does that look like? So there's a diversity of things that fit under research justice. We were thinking about imagination as a research tool more long, like this. Everyone is a researcher. Everyone has an innate curiosity about the world mm -hmm. and makes observations to make sense of the world around them. My initial wandering thoughts are, man, I really wish that you could have had this program with all the tech-based startups who find that data is only qualitative and that data isn't experiential and it, that the way you're thinking about data is much more holistic. And how do we bring in all these different parts to how a person experiences yes. into the fold in a way that is actually helpful to the end product? Yes, yes, totally. The things that I'm talking about are not restricted to a single discipline, right? Exactly mm -hmm. what you said. And so research is something that we are all capable of um, when you break it down into more accessible words. Um, and imagination is something that is typically written off as whimsical or non-serious, but in fact can be a very powerful tool for thinking more expansively. So imagination is what, as uh, my co-facilitator Pyle puts it, imagination is what allows a child to turn a cardboard box into a rocket ship. If we're thinking along the lines of Afrofuturism, Mm -hmm. Imagination is, has allowed so many writers and filmmakers to look critically at the past and using the, their observations and insights of the past to think exp expansively and creatively about what it means to be Black in the future. So all of the things that we were presenting in this workshop 
you know, we cannot take credit for. Like, there's a long lineage of people who have been asking these similar questions. We've just synthesized it into, like, one little experience. The way we explored this was that we're, we put out the idea that imagination is like a research method that we can all use to make sense of the world in a more expansive way, and particularly when we think about our movements and how we organize within our institutions. Mm. Can you expand on that a little bit? Like, What examples have you had in your own experiences with institutions or Pyle in her experiences, if she had expressed that? Pyle comes from more of um, a biological lab science background, and we've been talking a lot about how university and academic spaces in general tend to have a lot of hierarchies within them, whether it's based on like someone, if, if someone is a tenure track professor versus a research assistant, whose voices are listened to during staff meetings, lab meetings, mm. whose names are on papers. I mean, like those are small things, but like there's these huge power dynamics, right? Like yeah. as we've been thinking about Me Too, for example, in the context of universities, there's so much that has happened because of those hierarchies that are created. So we are thinking that imagination can be a tool to think beyond these hierarchy hierarchies and um, work around them. It affects yeah. you and you affect it. And to think that um, somehow academia is always nonpartisan and neutral is is just inaccurate. <laughs> With this background in hand, um, the activity that we did was this. So Pyle and I traveled to the future and we retrieved eight objects from this liberated future for our group of Imagineers to study. And they had to study it, think about what it was, what purpose did it serve, what society did it come from, what was the social moment that led to the creation of this object? What does it tell us about the society that created it or the values of this liberated future? What is a liberated future? Those were some of the questions the small groups had to wrestle with and they had to develop a museum caption based on that. And after that, everyone presented what their group's object. One was technically looked like a tea strainer with small paper wings, but it was actually, according to this group, a transportation device that allows you to travel where in the world. And so they were thinking of a world beyond borders. They were really focused Damn. on the idea of immigration and connecting with folks. When I did this workshop with my colleagues um, a few weeks later, just to see how it would go with a different set of people, they, they looked at the same object, actually, and they said it came from a liberated future wherein these are particulate catchers that they can, they, like flocks of birds, can migrate to parts of the ozone and improve air quality. Two objects from the future, but two very different purposes that people came up with. And so then we paused and we took a step back and then we did what we called, I call it a meta-analysis, um, where we, like, okay, we all engaged in this act of imagination. Um, we saw these objects, we studied them, we made observations and we tried to make meaning from them. Um, 
what assumptions and biases did we have when we approached these objects? Like, if you think about the scientific method, for example, like, when mm -hmm. you make a hypothesis, you're making it based on prior prior knowledge. Yeah. You know, you're, you're assuming some things to be given. People were talking about how imagination was an inherently vulnerable process, that daydreaming is typically something that is done in private. So having to put out that stupid idea, quote unquote, um, and share things that seemed off kilter or outside the box, leveled the playing field, um, mm -hmm. regardless of what degree people had. Others in the audience, like in the workshop who were educators working with marginalized youth, they were talking about how when you grow up with limited resources, your imagination can only be as big as what you see around you sometimes. Yep. Yep. So like, how do you nurture expansive imaginations among youth who just have not had the luxury of being able to see all sorts of possibilities, yeah. but do have this inherent creativity within them, you know? No, like everything that you're saying, there's a business concept that matches it. And it's oh. called, yeah, it's called Red Ocean, Blue Ocean Strategy. Oh. Everything you're saying is something I've been thinking about for the last month and a half because I read a book about Blue Ocean Strategy. What does that mean? So what we normally think of as the usual paradigm is Red Ocean Strategy. So it's like the status quo way of looking at the market or like looking at the way the world exists. So when you're coming up with a new idea and you're thinking, well, this is how everybody behaves anyway, so this is the type of market research that I'm going to depend on and use as my underlying thesis, what you're doing is creating a product that iterates on past products and leads to further commodification. So it's like, okay, I want to open up a coffee shop, but the exact same business plan, exact same business model. That's something that already mm. exists and you assume that people's behaviors aren't going to change. When you look at a blue ocean strategy, you're seeing the ocean as much bigger and you're looking at innovating in a different space. So you're not thinking about what already is in place or like what the competition is. You're thinking about creating a value for like your end consumer in a way that hasn't existed before. So you're mm. getting rid of this idea of I can only make money by lowering my cost or raising my prices. You're thinking, how do I create value that draws people to my product or to my service? Mm. And yeah. that is exactly what you're talking about. Like, how do we break out of what we assume to be true? How do we reimagine the possibilities of research and data and, and just inquiring? Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so some of the ways, one of your earlier questions was like, what has it been like now that it's been a few weeks later? Mm -hmm. So a lot of what Viola and I are thinking about, we're in the process of taking this workshop and creating a toolkit from it so that yes. it can be, yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm so excited. Whenever you say toolkits, get real excited. We wanted to make it like freely accessible to folks make it available so that it can be remixed for we've personally are toying with facilitating a series of workshops that pivot the original imagination as a research tool in a couple of different ways yeah so changing the kind of inherent question that people have when they're actually examining the object from a liberated future 
Mm-hmm. Now, maybe it can be for a global health context, it could be this is an object from a future where polio no longer exists. Yeah. Or, so maybe as a way to warm up folks who are working in a particular space to thinking a little bit more outside the outside the box. Most experts in the place, they know their stuff, right? But yeah. like, how do we get beyond the standard five solutions that are quote unquote practical? We are probably going to do it with uh, the South Asian open mic crew here okay. in Boston with subcontinental drift to think about what do South Asian futures look like? We don't pause it to know what South Asian fu- a South Asian future could look like, but um, perhaps doing this workshop with folks who are also interested in asking that question can illuminate some possibilities. So that's how we're using it to pivot. Or this is, this is how we're planning to pivot. Yeah. That's so rad, Nina. Like, we both have like had weird experiences with South Asian community development spaces. Um, and I I think a lot of the problem is with, if we keep it single generational instead of emphasizing multi-generational development, what we should all be striving for as opposed to like the performative nature of South Asian cultural and political development. Right. Yeah. Performative. That is so often the word. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm like very tired of this woke daisy thing. should wrap up um i just have one question for you yeah what is one song or two songs that you're just like really vibing with right now oh my goodness i am not ashamed to say that the despacito still makes me dance good (laughs) um especially since uh i really like it when my partner Bunty plays the dole to Despacito. Yes. Um, it makes me very happy. And then um, for some reason, like any Kevin Little song recently, just yeah. very feels very summer. <laughs> <laughs> it feels very like booty shaking, like sweat. I don't know. <laughs> How about you? Ape Shit by the Carters, and I Like It by Cardi B, and yes, Spanish-speaking yes. uh, artist who, whose names elude me right now, but both of them are phenomenal songs. Sounds good, Shields. And that's our episode. You can find the podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Onira Radio and online at OniraRadioHour.com. You can find Sheila on Twitter at Queen of Blah, and, and you can find Nina online at OnlyNina. If you dig what you hear, please don't hesitate to leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts. That would mean the world. Until next time.